Starting recording. Good evening. Happening live. We'd like to welcome our viewers from the United States and around planet Earth, especially in Phoenix, Arizona, where Peggy George is located and has helped us not blunder around Blab tonight uh, without a recording happening. So my name is Wes Fryer, and I'm in Oklahoma City, where it is cloudy, humid, and still feels like tornado season. I am the director of technology at Cassidy School. I periodically interview my wife and get to post podcasts on speedofcreativity.org. And I am looking forward to uh, a little bit quieter summer, although it's going to be full of, of work and projects. And I am joined, as always, by the almost Dr. Jason Neifer coming to us from Montana. What's going on with you, Jason? Good evening, Wes. Um, I'm joining you live from Missoula, Montana tonight, where we're expecting our first 90-degree day later this week. So that's exciting that summer is upon us, considering we almost froze overnight one night last week. Um, I am the curriculum director and assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, the public state virtual school in fabulous Montana, and also the tech-savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council in computer or for computer education. Um, I blog at blog.ncce.org. Um, and I'm excited about much of the news we'll be talking about this week. Um, and there's lots going on. Uh, obviously, we had the Google announcements last month. Uh, one of the things I'd like to talk about tonight is prognosticating. And we may need to get like a Karnak hat out and uh, talk a little bit about what uh, what might, we think might be coming um, at the Worldwide Developer Conference, or as my nerdy nerdy iOS friend developer friends call it, Dub Dub is apparently what they call the uh, Worldwide Developer Conference in uh, developer lingo, uh, which will be happening in two weeks in California. Um, and um, there are probably upcoming announcements, too, related to new Android phones. So lots of exciting stuff happening the next month, and we hope to tell you a little more what, what we think might be happening uh, as it relates to education. Absolutely. Well, let's jump right into news. We're doing an oblique fact, but, you know, I fear that uh, we may lose listeners uh, quickly. So we'll just we'll keep you with bated breath wondering what facts from from their history and their lives Jason and Wes are going to share. We'll we'll do that before we wrap it up. So why don't you just jump right into it, Jason? You have the mother load of uh, news articles for this week. Well, I found a lot of interesting philosophical things this week, and um, one of them I actually tweeted out and got some interesting feedback from other educators related to this. But there's a great article on Robert uh, Scoble's blog, thescobelizer.com, related to why uh, Apple is falling behind on a new interface, which they're calling uh, spatial computing. And um, as Mr. Scoble describes it, that there was there's been four um, visible, user, usable, visible user interfaces in the personal computer era. The first one was text mode, think like the command line and MS-DOS. The second one was a GUI or graphic user interface. And of course, Macintosh invented it. And PCs uh, ultimately uh, then evolved to that process. The third being touch, uh, largely with the introduction of phones um, and tablets. And he says the fourth movement in the visible user interface of the personal computing era will be spatial computing. And it's hard to really define what spatial computing is. Um, and uh, you can find definitions on it. He quotes one that says, spatial computing is a set of ideas. The technologies will transform our lives by understanding the physical world, knowing, communicating, or relation to places in those places. Um, and the transformational potential of spatial computing is evident according to the definition he cites in the article. But the interesting piece about this is, is that, I mean, obviously he does take a shot at Tim Cook and Apple. Um, you know, Apple's been famous for 
um, kind of waiting on evolving technologies and then ultimately swooping in after those technologies have been tried and, and defined and redefined to create kind of an evolved uh, uh, version of that. They certainly did that with the personal computer. They certainly did that with the smartphone and, and arguably they did that with the tablet as well. But he says they're falling behind in this. But what I think is interesting about this is not the Apple falling behind part, because that's a debate that I think will, will never be decided unless Apple just disappears. Um, but rather that spatial computing may be a future computing platform that we may have to come to terms with in education. Um, spatial education, the idea of understanding your place in space and how things relate to one another is something that is interesting to me. As a, a former teacher of geography, that was something spatial uh, cognizance, spatial education, understanding how space works um, was a very important part of teaching geography, particularly to the growing 14-year-old mind. Um, and sometimes we'd have to, um, you know, really get kids physically in in or around each one of those space to understand how spatial natures work. But technology can help us do that or provides an opportunity for us to evolve in the way we interact with one another related to that space. Think driverless cards, think um, um, the way that uh, we're starting to record things in a spatial way that uh, VR provides us not only the opportunity to see things in a three-dimensional way and and uh, create a, an environment that you can be immersed in, but then also the, it provides students the opportunity to record their surroundings to share with others, which is something we've talked about in past weeks. And so I can't really wrap my brain around this yet. But there's something here, I think, in the same way that, um, you know, that touch has really changed the way we've interacted with computers. I think spatial uh, interfaces, if you want to go that far, will also mean something as well. So does that, that ring a bell to you at all, Wes, or any thoughts about that? I have actually scanned the article as you've given us that excellent summary. So I'm, I love geography, too. So that was one of my majors as an undergraduate student. Um, I love the way that geography, far more than place location, is about the complex web of relationships that, you know, define patterns and phenomena and people and cultures. And so as I'm understanding this idea of spatial computing, you know, we're looking at robotics, we're looking at drones, we're looking at VR, uh, we are looking at cameras, um, one of the things that strikes me, uh, we, I, I probably mentioned a week or so ago that we had a session called, you know, dreaming and envisioning the future of computer science and STEM at our school. And, and we brought Vinny Vrotny, which actually, I think I, yeah, I think I published, I'll have to put a link in, I, uh, uh, published the audio recording of that on our website and at, at Kincaid school, which is a phenomenal independent private school in the Houston area where Vinny is the technology director. Um, they've had a chance to, you know, really envision what digital literacy should look like and, and really what sort of the core pillars are. And so that's what strikes me about this article is it's a bold statement to say, you know, replacing the touch interface is going to be spatial computing. Um, they had included wearables as sort of a fourth uh, genre or area of technology to be exploring, which they haven't done a whole lot with yet. I really think that in school, and, and, I'll, and I'll just speak for for our school. We have not yet embraced the the power of mobility. You know, we're still thinking about being tethered to computer labs and being, you know, in the classroom for our experiences. And there's all kinds of reasons why we 
probably will continue to do a lot of that. But the opportunity to take our computing devices not only out and then also just bring, you know, recordings bring life in, you know, because students have devices and have that kind of capability. Um, there are a couple projects that our teachers did this year. Uh, one of our Spanish teachers in eighth grade <clears throat> did a series of skits uh, that, the, that the students had scripted that some of the scenes, you know, they shot on their phones and they brought in. Um, one of our French teachers <clears throat> has done a pen pal project through ePals with another school in France. And we were trying to use their, my, my favorite 360 panorama app for the iPhone is called Bubbly. I've used uh, se uh, several different ones and we were, we were on the edge of doing sort of a virtual field, a virtual tour of our school of, with 360 degree panoramas that would be kind of stitched together with a geo map so that you could explore it, you know, on a Google, Google or, uh, map and then click and do that. So I'm intrigued by it. I know that one of my to do's for this summer really needs to be, and maybe we'll even make it for the fall, learning to fly the drone that I inherited from our former tech director. This is like a phantom something drone. It's like a thousand dollar drone. It's awesome. And as a GoPro, I have not flown it yet. Um, and uh, of course, I probably need to be flying drones that are a little less expensive first to <clears throat> get my feet wet with that. So I'm intrigued by the idea. Um, I, you know, I'm not I'm not sold on this that it that it's another interface. It kind of seems to me that this is a hodgepodge of of sort of mobile, uh, transformatively different experiences and ways of perceiving things. You know, when we when we throw VR into that. And, you know, they talk about general, what was the robotics company that Google bought? Uh, they mentioned that in the article. Uh, um, Boston, or Boston, Boston. Yeah. Robotics I, I mean, certainly the impact of computing in the Internet of Things and in a variety of, of devices that don't look like computers is a huge part of the future. And so perhaps that that's what they're getting at with spatial computing too, is that we're going to see the, the we're going to see computers in so many different places. And, and for next summer, I, we had to cancel it. We didn't get our, our stuff together. We're going to do a STEM Institute at our school. And part of it is, you know, like I've never played with Arduino. I've never done that kind of coding and being able to put, you know, an embedded inexpensive computer, you know, that, that does something, you know, that does some kind of a task. So, um, I'm intrigued by it, but I, I definitely need to learn, learn a little bit more about it. And, uh, it's, I, some of this gets overblown too. I, we did purchase a, a number of the, Google Cardboard plastic versions, you know, mm -hmm. and, and with the hope and promise that, oh, this will be so great to do these virtual field trips. Well, a lot of those videos mm -hmm. are like a gigabyte in size and the practicality of having students do all that in advance and, yep. and, and not just buying, you know, touches or you really have to have a pretty high end recent phone or, you know, touch device in order to, to realize it. So I feel like some of that is a little bit it's very sexy to see on a video. If you're trying to practically do it with students in the classroom, we're, we're not quite there yet. But some of those things are coming to just iPad. And I don't know that I, where I heard this, but like Nearpod, maybe you told me about this, has, no, it was Carl Hooker. Nearpod has some 360 degree panorama virtual tour stuff that's integrated within it. And so you're not having to put on a special headset, you know, and do it on your phone, but you can get, you know, we have iPad carts in the library and things that, that we can check out. So I don't know. It's, it's definitely on the cutting edge and it's, that's a bold statement for somebody to say it's the, the fourth user interface to. Right. 
So, and you mentioned Raspberry Pis. Have you played at all with the, or I'm sorry, with the, the smaller computers? Have you played with like a Raspberry Pi at all, or is that any interest of that at your school? Well, I'm very interested, and we're we're talking. I mean, we're talking now about um, the possibility of starting to offer some some high school computer science courses. We haven't had that kind of a track. We've been very traditional liberal arts, and uh, there's there's strong interest in doing that. But <clears throat> you know, the conversation about STEM skills and even computer science and coding can very easily extend beyond just, you know, learning coding to, you know, developing, you know, code for Raspberry Pi, developing algorithms for drones, you know, things that, that, that go into maker education and, and STEM right. education. So I would say we're on the cusp of some exciting things. Um, there's a, a project called or a, an activity called Science Olympiad that we have done at our middle division, middle level and at our high school as well. And our students have done really well in um, and our daughter, Rachel, is going to be in seventh grade. She's going <clears> to <throat> be coming to our school next year. And I'm pretty sure she's pretty fired up about, about STEM and about, you know, all, you know, technology. And I'm thinking she's going to do that. So we're, we're expanding on that front. And I think there's going to be more spillover effects in terms of courses and stuff. But that's the interesting thing about it, right? The maker movement, STEM, this thing, it's not just like, here's a course. And we tend to think that way in academia. It's also like, when, where can I have the space and the resources and the support to, you know, do a project to not, you know, even, we've been talking about even being able to fail and then having the time to iterate and, and figure out how to do it right. And that stuff doesn't just happen inside the boundaries of a, of a 45 minute or 50 minute class period. So anyway, yeah, we're, we're grappling with that kind of stuff, but I certainly, you know, uh, feel like we're on the cusp of, of a lot of movement in, in that area. Well, and I do think, um, and I, I, I own a Raspberry Pi. I think it's the second or third generation. It's a great, it's been a great kind of nerdy project platform for me. So I've, you know, I've made a, a media center out of it. I've created a BitTorrent sync, um, syncing server out of it. And not that I use those, I just made them because they were fun and uh, kind of got my nerd on. And I think the prospect of that in a kind of a freer computer science classroom or project-based computer science classroom is pretty, is pretty unbelievable. Um, but you know, that the other piece of this is, is that it's part of the reason why this is even possible is because you know, we now have, you know, $10 uh, Raspberry Pi zeros. We have $20 Arduinos. We have $60 Raspberry Pis. Um, and when I say $60 Raspberry Pis, I mean full implementation kits with everything included. And now, what, what have you, what have you made with yours or what have you done with that? Um, I, uh, mostly Linux based like projects and tools. Like it's not, uh, and nothing I've, I've kept. Like I just would do it. I amused myself and moved on. Um, I made a, a, a virtual radio. Um, server is probably a strong word, but it had a, um, it had a component where I could press a button and it would, it would start streaming Pandora. Um, and then I could press a button and change stations. That was pretty cool. Uh, the BitTorrent sync server, um, that would allow me to kind of create my own Dropbox, um, of sorts, which is pretty cool. I don't know if you've played around with BitTorrent sync, Wes, but it's, uh, um, I, in fact, I might want to talk about that one in the geek of the week because it's, it's a, it's basically roll your own Dropbox, um, that uses the BitTorrent protocol to sync between two machines. It's, it's unbelievable. That will certainly qualify as a geek of the week. That's, yes, that'll be a geek squared cool. week of the week. Yeah. Um, and you know, that sort of stuff has been really where I've been, um, with it. And I keep thinking to myself, if I were in a classroom with students or if I had a lot more free time, it wouldn't be hard to come up with. And maybe to, to the point of the spatial computing stuff, like, you know, creating internet of thing things that move. 
right? Or that, that rove around or that, that have a physical component to them, which I think is, is, is pretty fascinating stuff. But yeah, they're, it's, it, they're pretty amazing platforms. And, you know, and again, it's, it's well under a hundred dollars per item. Um, and, you know, that adds up over a classroom, but, um, you know, uh, for individuals in particular, I think it's a pretty compelling platform. So I think that there is all a lot of application there. That reminds me, have you played with Pirate Box or done a library box? Do you know about no. that? So <laughs> we're just going to go far afield with this. Uh, Alan Levine is the one that put me onto it because he did one called the Story Box. But basically you you buy like a $25 uh, cheap Wi-Fi uh, access point, and then you hack the firmware and then create, uh, and, and then you can have batteries that hook up to this thing, but you could be completely off the grid or whatever, and then you create your own, um, you know, sort of uh, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi network, uh, USB thumb drive. So, so you put a flash drive into it, and then, and people can leave files and, and share files or whatever. I don't know. I, I had, I never really got mine to work, and uh, one of the things that I had thoughts of at a conference was giving away my ebook and letting people connect to it and being able to do it. Anyway, that the the BitTorrent sync reminds me of it. So. But, you know, isn't there all kinds of learning that happened from that sort of thing, right? I mean, creating something like that and kind of going down going down a rabbit hole with, uh, you know, ma- making a project or something. And that all of that kind of learning doesn't also necessarily fit into a rubric or, you know, reflect on a grade card. But that's that's the fun of the maker movement and the whole idea of DIY and tinkering and all that stuff. So, Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and I think that's, that's where um, – this becomes very interesting too. Uh, well, the reason why I got into maker stuff in the first place, and this was six or seven years ago, was when Make Magazine was doing, um, you're taking old, you know, massive wooden radios and turn them into kind of internet based radio pieces. And, um, and, and I think that's cool stuff. And, you know, you don't even have to wire a, um, you don't even have to wire anything that extensive into it anymore. You can go buy a, you know, a thin 30, uh, $30 computer like the Raspberry Pi or the, the, the many alternatives, including the Intel alternative to the, that's available for that now. And it's, it's pretty cool stuff. Um, I, by the way, I, I do have a, a permanent home for my Raspberry Pi. We're going to turn it into a MAME box. So MAME is the multi arcade emulator. And we're going to hook it up to the TV at work and maybe play a little, uh, old school arcade at lunch sometimes. So that that'll is be awesome. Uh, well, well for the, for the holiday, which by the way, we, we're going to need to get an update here partway through on your, your Canadian adventure. Cause I've been thinking about that and want an, an update, but <clears throat> my sister and family were down from Liberty, Missouri, and we have the old school eighties arcade pub down in Oklahoma city. So yes, we were kicking it old school playing defender and miss Pac-Man and, you know, and I was reflect, and that reminds me of MAME because, because when I had dabbled with that, this has been like t- probably 10 years ago, it was like amazing. Cause it was all these, you know, old Atari games and, and things that you're like, but anyway, that, <clears throat> that also runs the edge of copyright with some of that kind of stuff. And yes, it does. It's interesting. No. All right. Well, I have a segue to my article from that, from spatial computing, this is not a current news article, but I did find it via another article this week. And um, the title is NASA adds evidence to mysterious ancient earthworks. This was New York Times last October in 2015. But truly, this is one of the most amazing Google Earth stories I've ever heard, because we're all probably familiar with the Nazca lines in Peru, which are these very mysterious uh, you know, sculptures that, that really you can only see from, from the air, from, even from space. 
but uh, you know, there's all kinds of interesting ideas that people have about aliens and things and why people, why, why would the early uh, native peoples of, of South America have created these? Well, there was a fellow uh, who was using Google earth and he was looking, I, th- I want to say it was in Kazakhstan and he identified these, uh, these structures, which are not, um, you know, insects or animals, there are, there are crosses. There's a, a, what something that looks a lot like a swastika, which actually that was a symbol, you know, far long before the Nazis appropriated it. Um, and anyway, he found this on Google earth and then it's been verified and they, you know, have excavated some of them and they're not, you know, this was, this was about six months ago, I guess in October or, or almost whatever, uh, three fourths of a year ago. Um, Anyway, they, I, I haven't read more about it, but how amazing to use Google Earth in your house as an amateur. It's kind of like the amateur astronomers who, you know, help discover the, the new Goldilocks area, you know, region planets or, you know, some, some kind of, uh, near, near Earth, uh, asteroid or something like that that's happening, but really amazing tools. So, and, and a segue to that would be, how are we using those kind of spatial tools in school, right? I mean, I don't, I do not know anyone at our school doing some kind of a geo map project. I mean, other than the one I mentioned with France where we were like, yeah, let's do a virtual tour and, you know, hook these, these uh, 360 degree panoramas up to, to a map. So I don't know that that's one of those things that I absolutely love. I love geography and all of, of those connections. And every time I've had a chance to kind of de- do a, do a deep dive or even a little dabble into Google earth, it just it just kind of blows your mind, and that's one of the things I've enjoyed about Google, um, you know, events. I, I did a Geo Institute a few years ago up in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, just love love that kind of stuff, and would like to, to you know have more opportunities to dabble in, in that. Not that I'm going to be discovering something something amazing, but um, you know, be, being able to to put photographs to the map and, and have automated ways of doing that, or you know, storytelling and all the ways in which you know, place-based stories overlay. I think there's there's lots of rich connections to be made there. So, are you, are you a Google Earth fan, or is that one of the one of the tools that you're not working or haven't worked in as much? Um, I am a big fan of it, and uh, obviously, I haven't been in front of a, a class of geography students in in some time. But one of the most exciting things about me for that particular tool was the ability to, you know, really insert yourself anywhere. I mean, the world seems like a lot less big place when you can drop a little yellow guy onto a street in the middle of of South Korea and suddenly get a sense of what life is in in those locations. And it makes a really big difference when you can create a, you know, kind of a uh, almost three-dimensional environment where you can um, see what uh, the ground looks like in um, the outskirts of Rome, where you can see the location um, of a current event. Uh, uh, you know, put yourself on the street corner where there was a, a tragedy or a bombing or something to, you know, uh, you know, get a sense of what something looks like. And that that's that, that's something that that really would never have any um, any analog on the um, or in the face to face or I'm sorry, yeah, in the traditional environment. There's no book that could do that. It really is. Um, 
um, it really is a, a great part of that process. So uh, yeah, I'm, I think it's it's amazing. These are the Google goggles that that we ordered and have have versions of. And I'll do a shout out to to Eric Langhorst. He was the one that had told me about this particular model, which is you know a lot easier for kids as far as being plastic and rubbing off. But we have had some teachers, um, what you know, say, can we go to the Parthenon? Can can we see Athens? You know, and and then being able to do it with their phone and then having some students do that. Uh, so that that's. Anyway, it's a challenge to think about other ways that we may we may dabble in that arena. And that's a challenge that I'm thinking about for next year as well is is how I can with our busy schedules, you know, bring some of some different learning opportunities uh not not just with different tools, but with different projects, you know, that students could be creating how how we're going to do that at our school. Yep. Interesting stuff. So the the next article speaking of immersive environments that um um, I, I found interesting this week is ex-Googler slams designers for making apps addictive like slot machines. And then it points to an article by Tristan Harris, who's a former Google employee, um, how technology hacks people's minds from a magician and Google's design ethicist, which I think is an interesting concept design um, uh, 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 or that that. There's a design ethicist that, that worked for Google at some point. But the, the basic idea here is that um, if you look at why a casino game is engaging and the same things about casino games um, um, uh, have been built into, um, you know, apps and the way we engage in places. And um, I think that's a, it's an important point. And it actually leads into a presentation that I've done a couple of times this spring that has gone over very well. And, of course, this is a good time to remind you that both uh, Wes and I do do training for hire. Um, we do birthday parties, uh, bar mitzvahs, uh, whatever might be available. Um, and um, it, this has gone really well this year. The name of the presentation was, um, you know, you're so distracted, you probably think this presentation's about you. And I went through some of the awesome. emergency research related to uh, digital distraction and, and some of the ways that, that um, you can kind of battle this process. And this article really um, um, uh, kind of hit home with me because it goes to the point of some of the steps that I've taken in order to battle, um, you know, my phone kind of taking over my life. And I talk about this one a lot with, with groups of teachers, but as an example of this, I turned off all the mail notifications for my work email. Um, I've decided that I get enough email during the day that it really didn't matter anyways, but more importantly, at nighttime when I want to be, you know, with my family or um, engaged in, in a hobby or speaking to my friend Wes about technology news, um, uh, you know, instead I was constantly, I get, you know, beeps on my phone related to my email that that wasn't very productive, oftentimes drew me into a late night work um binge that was not productive. And by the way, if anyone emails you at 1030 at night, especially in a contentious or complaining email, um, it, that's not going to be good if you answer that that night. You should wait overnight anyways. But I've, I've taken that that stance now that I've um, you know done that with, with everything. Um, I've turned off everything but the very critical notifications. Um, I don't even get text message notifications anymore except from a handful of people. 
Um, and I've really taken that on as, as a, a personal commitment. Um, one other factor is that we ban phones from our bedroom at, at our house. So there is no, there's no screens at all uh, where we sleep. And that's also been uh, a, a, an important piece of this too. But I think that that's something that we have to you know, remember to balance with. And I think it's important that we as teachers talk to kids about this, that you know, if we're distracted by these technologies, the you know, distracted 14 year old may be a hopeless case. And and, you know, we want to be proactive in the way we're telling kids, yeah, we know this stuff is distracting, right? Like, let's not pretend it's, it's not. So what what is it that we can do to you know, build strategies in order to, to to deal with those pieces? And so particularly the Medium article by the, the Google design ethicist, I think, is a really great read. It might give you some indication of why. Um, you not only that, you know, we are, we're inviting distraction into our lives with our cell phones, but also, um, you know, that we, um, you know, should battle against it and should do our best to help. Huge, hugely important. And one of these things that we need to be uh, equipping ourselves as well as teachers with. And I think in the educational technology advocacy evangelist, you know, camp, we, um, we need a healthy dose of uh, of Gary Stager, of uh, of Luddite perspectives, of of you know people who are going to question things and and not just you know drink the Kool Aid. So uh, it's really vital that we yep. we recognize the power of these devices. And I'm you know struck about about this regularly in my own family and just in our life. Right when we see how almost incapable we are to allow our minds to be idle without stimulation. Uh, we are going to be going camping this summer as a family. We did this two years ago and we're going to be, I think at 9,500 feet approximately up in the Colorado mountains for a week uh, offline. And uh, in fact, my wife just ordered her paper book. She's going to read the uh, book called our kids. We heard, Oh gosh, uh, Fulgham. I think Robert Fulgham speak at this PBS um, national conference. And it's anyway, he's the guy that wrote Bowling Alone. I'm getting his name right. Anyway, she's planning to have the paper book, okay? Because there's not going to be a screen to to be able to uh, read to to read. And and so, I I've 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 known for a while that a true vacation today is defined by disconnection from technology. And so it's, um, yep. you know, it's, it's super important. So yeah, Jason, I got to figure out when I'm going to be able to see you and, uh, attend your, attend your sessions and, uh, we're going to have to hang out. Maybe we seriously, maybe we should start plotting for next summer. Um, we were talking about trying to do a story chaser, um, oral history thing with Nancy, uh, which was not going to, I wasn't going to be able to do it. One of our other story chaser people were going to be able to do it, but anyway, maybe we should chat about something cause we, don't necessarily need to wait for an invitation. We might be able to make something happen next summer. In fact, I want to take our family to Yellowstone. We can, we can talk more about that offline later. But I do want to ask you, when do you refresh your sessions? You know, because you're, you're definitely continuing to, you're not just doing the same stuff you were doing three years ago. So do you find yourself doing that over the ho Christmas holidays or all the time? Or wh when do you kind of refresh your new presentations? And then, you know, how does that work for you? Um, I usually, um, my, I, most of my calendars planned around um, two different events. One of them um, is, um, actually, it's three different events. The three different events that I'm usually consistently presenting at are is NCCE in, in Seattle or Portland, and that's something that I've been you know, more, more closely involved with in the last few years. 
um, both conference planning and delivering sessions. Um, there's also a, a Moodle moot in Montana each year. And so usually I will team up with Mike Agustinelli, who's the instructional program manager at the Digital Academy, and we'll either premiere a presentation there that we've been working on for a while that we intend to take elsewhere at some point. And then um, usually I, I do a fresh presentation every year for the iNACAL Blended Learning right. Symposium. iNACAL is the International North American uh, on Learning Group. I just found out today that for the first time since I started going, um, my presentations were turned down. So, um, yeah, quite sad. And um, unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to go ahead and, and play the sad trombone Look sound. at you. Who needs Google Hangout, baby? Jason is high tech. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, uh, um, and, and so we had developed some fresh presentations, uh, presentation titles, um, for that. So, um, um, but yeah, we'll see. Um, I think there's a, um, yeah, there is a continuum for me and, um, um, and, and, you know, I, I do have four or five keynotes, I would say in the can. And then if I need to do them, I can, you know, adapt them pretty quickly to, to make presentations. But yeah, I would say it's about, about every six or seven months or so, I'll introduce awesome. one or two That's presentations awesome. to the group. So. All right. Well, it's okay if I do another article. All right. So, uh, yeah, this do. one, uh, there's a, there's actually the, uh, a brother of a high school classmate of mine. His, his name is Davi Ottenheimer and he's presented at Black Hat and he is a, uh, he, he is a, a white hat hacker and both he and his, and his brother phenomenally smart guys. <clears throat> in fact, I'll never forget. This was in probably 1987 when his brother, uh, Fawn, uh, wasn't able to print a document. And so he, he brought a floppy disk into our senior English class and attempted to turn in his floppy disk <laughs> to the teacher who said, eh. anyway, that was like t guy before his time. Anyway, it's kind of fun because he'll sometimes retweet my stuff and I'll see what he's doing. And a lot of his stuff has to do with security. And, uh, I'm, you know, continuing to, to read all kinds of interesting things about our security state. This article is a new one. It's from May 31st from yesterday from agweek.com, one of my regular spots to always get news. Um, and it is, it's that the North Dakota UAS test believed to be the world's first. And I don't know why they didn't call it a UAV, but this is like a 12,000 pound drone that instead of, you know, flying over th the Middle East or, you know, Latin America or whatever, uh, we uh, are seeing it used in the United States to, at a very granular level, photograph and document uh, fields so that it'll, they'll be able to, you know, use them for even more biotech, um, uh, specific biotech applications. <clears throat> when we lived in Lubbock, Texas, we, we moved to Oklahoma about 10 years ago. One of our, our good family friends uh, worked for Monsanto, the seed company, and Sadly, and he didn't, he's not working for them anymore. Uh, you know, one of the things he would do for them was basically try to, try to help cotton farmers snitch on each other because they had, you know, patented the, 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 uh, seeds that, that they were developing that were Roundup ready and all this stuff. But talking to him, I mean, it's stuff that just blows your mind because at that time, this was a decade ago, you know, all of the planters had GPS on them and were very precisely putting down a specific amount of fertilizer and a specific amount of, uh, of seed or whatever, uh, pesticides that they needed to maximize their yields. And so they were using satellite imagery to do this. And so 
anyway, this this uh, use of the UAV, you know, shows a crossover where we're not just talking about uh, the military application. We're also talking about, in this case, agricultural applications. I went ahead and put a link below it uh, that I had found again through your recommended uh, note to self podcast, but this was actually a radio lab show from June of 2015 called Eye in the Sky. And this, this was, um, some guys who came back from the Middle East working for intelligence services in the United States. And they were looking at how, you know, constantly flying drones can have a, a huge impact on crime. And they were trying to get contracts and I think still are getting contracts with large cities. Um, they were doing things down on the border in uh, McAllen and, you know, right, right across, um, you know, the border with Mexico. And one of the things that they could do is when somebody had called in a crime, you know, they were able to use the, the drone that not only had live footage, but it had the archived footage. And so they could just, just like you do a security camera, just ratchet back in time. And so they, there was an example of a female police officer who was ambushed and killed, but they were able to see exactly where these vehicles came from and, you know, where the, the jefe's, you know, spot, home was. And, you know, anyway, it, it was having a big impact on crime. But when it comes to privacy, when it comes to, you know, the whole Edward Snowden effect where, where we're much more aware of the ways in which our government is monitoring our behavior, you know, and we have the the desire for civil liberty and and, and to preserve this amorphous thing called privacy. It, it's it's interesting, but I, I thought that was significant. And again, with the edtech situation room, if we bring it back to the classroom and the schools, you know, how are we even touching these issues from an ethical standpoint, but also from a skill standpoint? I'll tell you one way we are here in Oklahoma City is through one of our community colleges, Rose State College. It's uh, just, a, you know, by Tinker uh, east of town in, in Midwest City. Uh, they're hosting a series of cybersecurity workshops for students as well as teachers. And there are federal grants for this. And, and part of that whole thing is to try to help kids get, you know, aware of and then oriented to coding and STEM careers because we need a new, a, a, you know, another generation of cyber warriors uh, on the military front. But we also need that, you know, within business because, again, the Internet of Things means you can now hack our houses and, you know, all, all kinds of things like that. So pretty, pretty cool article and kind of an eye rate, an eye opening thing to think about that, you know, basically military class drone you know, flying over the fields of North Dakota. Yep. Well, and it gives you a real sense too of um, that we're on the verge of sort of pretty amazing stuff regarding that, the miniaturization, the inexpensive nature of these technological, technological evolution change everything. And it's funny because uh, um, this was 10 years ago, no, 12, 15 years ago. Now um, I was a, uh, teacher in residence for a grant program to put more or to train future um, uh, rural uh, teachers um, uh, uh, related to technology. And I actually spent one night uh, uh, talking with a professor I was matched up with his class that was uh, about um, it was part of his natural horsemanship um, program at uh, one of the rural universities in Montana. And I spoke to some of these issues that, that every single industry and what I specifically talked about that night was uh, mesh Wi-Fi and GPS technology as it related to farming 
of, of, of all things was going to change a lot of how, um, you know, we, we interact with those, with those industries, whether you're talking about large sale or small scale farming operation. And it's interesting to see those things come to fruition. What, so what, what, one, one more add on to that. I'll try to drop the link. Ed surge has a, a nice podcast series and they were, at some kind, I don't know if it's the White House Maker Fair. They were at some kind of Maker Fair interviewing folks. There were people from uh, NSA and the security agencies, you know, trying to recruit cyber warriors. And wh- what they were talking about needing are smart kids who can figure stuff out and solve problems. And and you know, computational thinking. They didn't use that word, but but we really need to find ways in school to celebrate the hackers, you know, celebrate the kids who can, like you said, take an Arduino and, and make a radio and be able to make things and figure things out. And that is just, that is not what we've traditionally done in school. We traditionally think about, you know, doing our times tables and, and memorizing states and capitals and reading Shakespeare. I mean, we're not, we're not celebrating to the degree that we really need to um, the, the ability and the, and the, which is a cultivatable skill, right? It's not just a, a na- there probably there's some, you know, in, innate desire to do that kind of thing and tinker, but that, that needs to be something we're very intentional about celebrating. So we're seeing stuff kind of outside of schools, but you know, we're not, we're not seeing that mainstream focus on it. And I'd love to anyway, maybe interview some kids and just amplify a little bit more what's happening with that. Cause it's not that I'm trying to, you know, get everybody to go work for the NSA and become part of the security state. Um, but, but frankly, that that is an important part of of what we're going to need more of is uh, emphasis on the smart geeks that can use their knowledge and skills for good and not for evil. Yep, absolutely. Well, Wes, um, we've come to that time in the program where I'm going to ask you to put your Karnak the Magnificent hat on um, and try to guess um, uh, what will be happening in – there we go. That looks very good. Um uh, Apple has announced again their worldwide developer conference um, on June 13th, so just two weeks away from that particular event, and um, a lot of interest this year about what Apple might be announcing. Um, it's been um, interesting to kind of watch them evolve uh, it, it, since the Tim Cook era started. So, um, Wes, would you like to take a stab at what you think might be um, might be presented at the Worldwide Developer Conference. My hope is that the second generation Apple Watch is going to include FaceTime and we're going to be able to, you know, do video conferencing from the watch. I'm sometimes I'm a little more attentive to the rumor blogs and I I haven't been in the last week or so. Um I don't know that we dropped the link in, but but Apple just announced I I'm pretty sure in the in the last week or two weeks um, a similar thing to the Amazon Echo, right? That there, it's a Siri-like device in the home. So Google has one, and Apple has one as well. Um, you know, maybe this gets into the spatial computing side. But I, I had a chance this weekend because my sister and husband have a new car to to play with CarPlay. You know, so I, I mean, I don't think we're going to be seeing you know Apple announce that they're going to be doing a, doing a car. But the whole this the whole spatial computing side of things to to dovetail off that first article that you shared and Apple's sort of it's not a mantra, but their their um, modest operandi or whatever sometimes tends to be. And I think large companies can sometimes do this is to study what others are doing and then try to to iterate better on top of what they've done before. So I think they're going to continue with the wearables. You know, the Apple Watch hasn't been the, the revolution that people have thought it would be. But at the same time, it's one of these technologies that's going to evolve. And they're you know, it's 
we we've said this before. People are probably like, why is he this broken record, you know, still going on this podcast? But we're we're becoming cyborgs. You know, we're we're, we're tied to our devices and we're, we're we're we feel incomplete without them. So I definitely expect them to continue uh, iterating on the, the wearable side. Uh, and hope that it's going to involve, you know, more video and, and some things like that that I would see as, as directly applicable and useful for my life. And, and frankly, that I can justify to my own spouse the purchase of the Apple Watch. But what are your predictions? Well, it's funny. I, I don't um, – I do not owe anyone – I guess that's not true. My friend who is an, an iOS developer for Nike, he has an Apple Watch, but I think he excused it because um, – he felt like he needed to for work. But um, I would say the two things I'm really expecting um, some some movement on at WWDC is first, I do think that Siri will begin to evolve again. I do think it's been stuck for the last 24 to 36 months and Alexa proving that there could be a, a some kind of market for this that wasn't perceived or envisioned before, plus evolution in Google Now, um, I think is a... Um, a potential um, interesting part of the process. That all is something that um, um, uh, I think we'll see some 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 headway on. And, and I think it's it's right. I think Siri has been a bit stuck um, in the last uh, uh, I would say you know eighteen months or so, um, and it it could use some some updates. Um, the other thing that I, I'm pretty sure is going to happen, and if it doesn't happen this year, it's definitely going to happen. Um, um, next year is I, I do think that Apple is going to figure out a way to add touch to the the MacBook line, and um, I don't see it happening like with an iMac. Um, although that would be interesting with the 27 inch, you know, high definition, uh, super 5K display iMac to have a touch interface. But I do think on the MacBook Pro, the MacBook uh, Air, and then the MacBook that they will at some point, and it's not even hardware. I don't think hardware is the issue. I think that it's, it's how do you evolve the OS to utilize touch in a meaningful way. Uh, Windows 10 does a fairly admirable job. And mind you, that's a, you know, a two-time iteration over Windows 8 um, to make that happen. But I think at some point it's inevitable that, that uh, Macs will, will have a touch interface. And they have a ton of experience from delivering, you know, the, the, the most successful tackle platform, um, you know, to, to making that touch possible. So there's something there. I don't know if this is the year, but I would also expect at some point to get some evidence of touch. Um, they'll also introduce a new version of OS 10 uh, as they're doing yearly now. Um, although to be quite honest, I like the three versions ago one, the one now, uh, cosmetic differences. Like I don't feel like there's been a lot of really advanced uh, uh, feature sets in recent versions. Of OS Here's 10. what I'm going to be real interested to see if they'll, they'll alter course on, and that is the trajectory of their three laptop models, right? Uh, as of a few weeks ago, I'm now utilizing a, a new 12-inch MacBook, which is the, the two-port, and I'm using it now. I have my, uh, what is it, VGA, USB, and, uh, and USB-C adapter, you know, that's, that's plugged in over here so I can be in power, and then my microphone's plugged in, and then I've got my, my, my headphones or headset, earbuds, whatever, and the other one. Um, we have been at, at school using the circa 2012 MacBook that was the pre-retina but built-in DVD player 
uh, device. And and putting an SSD drive, as we've talked about before, makes that yeah. thing lightning fast. And uh, we're we're on the edge of saying, okay, for new faculty and new teachers that are coming in, are we going to go Air? Are we going to stick with MacBook Pro? However we go, there's no built-in DVD. Or do we take this jump to a MacBook right. uh, with this, you know, USB-C connector and then, or do we think about iPad Pro? I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's really kind of confusing and reminds me a little bit of, of pre-Steve Job return days when Apple had so many different product lines. I really thought the MacBook Air was going to disappear. I don't know whether it's Apple hedging yeah. their bets because they're always ahead of the game with stuff, right? I mean, they took the floppy drive out early. They have done all kinds of things sort of before the industry was ready. Um, I think, I don't know, a lot of our teachers probably still need more peripherals. I don't know a lot of them. I mean, the majority of them are, are, have smart boards available. We're starting to get more into some Apple TV and some AirPlay and things like that. Um, but I, I don't know. I've done, yes, I'm interested in the Apple Watch. It's a little bit of, you know, do I, do I need that? No, I absolutely don't. But we do need to figure out what path we're going to follow for our next refresh, uh, which won't be actually this summer. The next big refresh of laptops is going to be in another year. But I, the, the jury is out for me on which way to go uh, with our teachers. And I'm, I'm interested to see where Apple goes with that as far as their laptop lines. Cause I don't know. Obviously they must be selling a bunch of all of them. Otherwise they would, they would discontinue one of the product lines. But yeah. I did hear, I think on the clockwise podcast, they were talking about, you know, people's disappointment that in the, in the latest rev of the MacBook, it didn't have touch and it didn't, you know, it just got a bump basically, but it, it didn't yeah. substantively change in, in form factor and, and Apple didn't drop it either. So anyway, I'm, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with that because that has immediate implications for us as an IT department in terms of, of what we uh, roll out for teachers and, um, you know, what we kind of declare as the next standard. One of the things that's also complicated is our power supplies will all change, right? Cause Apple has a different power supply for all of these things. So at this point, it's been nice to, to sort of that sort of to be standardized on that 2012, you know, MacBook and, everybody's got the same power supply. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So we'll see. Um, and we can come back to these predictions in a couple of weeks and see what happens. Um, I do think, Oh, the other thing I do expect to hear more about is um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, of, of advancements on educational management and uh, educational application of the iPad in iOS 9.3. And so I'm wondering if there'll be any other efforts there or if they're, um, um, if they'll say that for another event or what's happening there. So very interesting the we're going into. So, All right. Well, I think we probably need to uh, do our oblique facts. I don't know that that's the best name for this corner, but, you know, the, the non, the B-side, um, the B-side fact, the non-ed tech news related thing. You, you have something in mind for this? Sure. Yeah. I, I, uh, as I mentioned last week, I, I did go to Canada for the, right. um, three day weekend. My wife and I, um, drove up. It was about a four and a half hour drive from Missoula to Cranbrook, uh, British Columbia, which I kept calling Cranberry, including to the, to the border guy. And he kind of looked at me sideways. Um, and, uh, pretty quiet, sleepy town. And, you know, we were kind of looking for quiet and sleepy because we were looking to rest, but had an opportunity to hike around, uh, Fernie, British Columbia and, we went scoping out uh, uh, hot springs, um, 
north of Cranbrook. Um, unfortunately, the one we found was way over, um, way overrun with with locals. Um, so we could only dip our little you know, little toes into the hot water before uh, we got kind of crowded out. But a great trip, nice weather. Um, and um, actually, the, the one thing I was most curious about is that you hear stories occasionally of crossing over the U.S. border and back related to laptops. Hmm. And I know I've read some articles that people on business had crossed a border and um, on the way back had their laptops searched. And I was most curious to see if that was going to happen to us. And they didn't even ask us. So <laughs> we drove there and back for no reason, uh, you know, no national security issues. But uh, I was curious to see that was going to happen. So, um, you know, not that, you know, finding my, uh, you know, uh, a uh, ripped DVD collection of the West Wing on my laptop would, would not be that interesting. So, um, sadly enough, but, uh, yeah, so that was our, our trip this weekend and, and, uh, nice awesome. well, my little fact for, of the, of, for, for the podcast is I was, uh, I visited, we, we have chapel at our school and we have, uh, two different Episcopal priests and <clears throat> the museum of the Bible is an amazing new museum that's going to be opening in Washington, DC, about three blocks from the Air and Space Museum in the U.S. Capitol in November of this year. And its uh, headquarters is here in Oklahoma City. And a couple weeks ago, I had a chance to go to a men's conference with a friend at our, in our Sunday school class who works for them. And anyway, he got their curriculum for us. So I've, I've passed that on. It's on iPad and, and then there's, you know, printed versions. And, and so I got to meet with our, our priest today. So ended up talking about travel in the Middle East and I've been listening to podcasts. And so I was reminded about, we were talking about the power of travel. Um, in when I was 12, I went to Turkey and was in uh, Istanbul and had a chance to take a two week trip, uh, really all over Western and Central Turkey. And, uh, man, talk about, you know, geography and the connections to history. I mean, I just remember coming back from that thinking, like, we have almost no history in our country, right? 200 years is just nothing. And uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, our, our full family doesn't even have passports. We've talked about needing to... You know, get those to to be ready to be able to travel. But um, you know, the the crossroads of history, and then and there's so much happening right now in the Middle East. Um, so anyway, little little fact fact about me, and I would love to be able to to you know introduce my children to international travel in that same kind of way because nothing kind of brings history alive, you know, than being in what was Constantinople, now Istanbul, and all, you know, where the Byzantine Empire was in the St. Sophia or Hagia Sophia, and, you know, which was a, a Christian cathedral, and then, you know, converted to a mosque and the overlay of literally hundreds and thousands of years of human history. Cool stuff. So that was probably longer than I needed to be, but there's your oblique fact about West tonight. There you go. So let's go ahead and do our Geeks of the Week, Wes, and then we'll call it an episode. Um, I had found out um, a week or two ago that Snagit for Chrome, which was a um, screen capture and a, a screen recording software, a plugin for Chrome, was no longer being supported by um, the uh, makers of Snagit, um, and so that leaves that uh, plugin uh, to, to eventually die in the vine here. Um, I've actually been a, a big, um, and by the way, it's TechSmith is the company that makes that particular um, um, a, a product, and I uh, we're a site licensee for Snagit. Um, and Camtasia Studio, it, they're both critical learning tools um, in, in our perspective at the Digital Academy. 
Um, but um, they uh, have announced that they're they're kind of shifting focus and taking support away from that tool. The other one that's that's interesting is uh, Nomia, uh, which is a, um, a a popular tool as a screen chomp on the iOS platform. Both uh, are going away, sadly. But um, I, I did end up finding two alternatives. Um, I do spend quite a bit of time on a Chrome platform, and those alternatives for me were Screencastify for video, and I know I didn't put my link in there, but Awesome Screenshot is the other uh, Chrome plugin. So if you were using um, the Snagit uh, plugin, which was very well done and, and, and a great piece of software, um, there's an alternative now. So uh, feel free. There are great alternatives available. They've always been around, but uh, great alternatives for you to utilize if you're using those tools. Awesome. And my uh, Geek of the Week is, is similar in that it um, is an app that is con- continuing to evolve, not going away, but it is Adobe Spark. And I have been a, a fan of Adobe Voice as an amazing digital storytelling app. One of the challenges is you can't, kind of like in the early days of VoiceThread, when you could use a single account in the classroom and everybody could log in, but then they changed it. You can't do that with Adobe Voice. Um, every every child has had to have their own email. So that presents some challenges if you're not using Google Apps and giving kids emails. But um, they have basically, uh, you know, sort of migrated Adobe Voice. In, and with Adobe Spark, you can still create slideshow videos, but you can also do web pages and posters. And it's one of the things that I'm going to be exploring and then utilizing in July when I do another iteration of iPad Media Camp. Very excited to see that they have built-in Google authentication. One of the goals that we're going to continue working towards at our school is uh, is, is, is an almost single sign-on environment, which we do not have yet. And there's still you know three primary important emails and passwords that staff and faculty have to be keeping track of. So anyway, I look for that in, in tools. But powerful for students to be able to take images and you know, and, and, and also have a library of images because that's another thing that can take so much time if you're going to create digital stories is, is finding the images. So Adobe's done a real nice job with those tools, and I'm glad to see them updating. And I also put a link into uh, Mike Petty did a little tutorial about using Adobe Spark to add text to images, kind of like info pics, as Tony Vincent calls them. So a good project and something that, again, in our visual world with needing to utilize media, uh, th- these are these are good things to be able to create and ways to think about weaving those into classrooms as projects. And I think it's important to applaud Adobe, um, even though we're we're a bit frustrated the Digital Academy with trying to license those tools in in a virtual school context, and we could talk about that in detail for another night. I do think they've done an ex- excellent job in the last three years of creating excellent app based um, tools that they're releasing largely for free. Um, to the community. And I think that's going to keep them relevant in an era where people may choose not to utilize Photoshop because there are great alternatives available for $10 in the app store that, that do just as much with a touch interface. And so um, much, much love and applause to Adobe for their evolution um, in, in uh, recent years to kind of evolve their products. So great stuff. Awesome. All right, well, I'll say where I'm at and where you can find me, and then if you want to take us out, I am at on Twitter at WFryer, and I am blogging sporadically at speedofcreativity.org. I continue to to update my Twitter profile from time to time to figure out why, you know, it's like TMI. There's too, there can be too much information with too many different places, but uh, I will be this summer, again, doing some iPad media camps, and so we'll be tweeting 
from that hash from that you know Twitter account a little bit and updating curriculum and things like that there. But um, mo- most excited here in June to go down to iPad Palooza again and and be able to go down there with my wife, who I'm very excited that will also be a featured speaker, and then headed to ISTE. So those are going to be fun things, and we'll have to take a look at our schedules and and see because you're not you're not doing ISTE, is that correct, Jason? That's correct. Also denied from ISTE this year. So it's a, I'm a multi-time loser oh, to the National I've been a, a super, super loser for ISTE for years and years. And somehow the, the planets aligned and I got three accepted. I've never, never had more than one. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Awesome. Well, my name is Jason Neifer and I am the assistant director, curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy. You can find me on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Uh, I am also the co-author of the Tech Savvy Teacher blog for nccblog.ncc.org. And we record this podcast every, well, most Wednesday evenings um, at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, 2 o'clock a.m. UTC for those of you that um, you know, are nerdy and have that calendar, uh, uh, UTC calendar on your desktop. Um, you can join us live on Blab. Uh, we'd love to have you join uh, the panel sometimes. So feel free to jump in at any time and, uh, you know, uh, feel free to talk about the issues of the day. Um, otherwise, uh, this is uh, posted at edtechsr.com. Um, you can find us on uh, the iTunes podcast library. You can find us on Stitcher Radio or wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. So please feel free to join us um, on a future episode of the Tech Situation Room.